Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Sennett. I'm a master's qualified digital marketer. Together, we're going to up-level your marketing game. My aim for the Marketing Mindset Club is to give you clarity on how to create and communicate value. Learn the latest marketing techniques, build your skill set, and develop the confidence you need to get the results you want. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Marketing Mindset Club. Today, we're talking to Jason Barnard. So Jason is the founder and CEO at CaliCube, a groundbreaking digital marketing agency that pioneered the concept of exact match brand certs, which is what your audience sees when they Google your brand name. And I'm definitely going to ask you more about that in our conversation. He has over two decades of experience in digital marketing, starting in the year Google was incorporated with a site for kids that he built to become one of the 10,000 most visited sites in the world. So we're going to cover that as well. Uh, He regularly writes for leading digital marketing publications such as Search Engine Journal, Search Engine Land, SEM Rush, and a whole host of other publications. And you have probably also seen him on stage at Brighton SEO or PubCon or Search Metrics London, SMX London, and Yoscon. So welcome to the show, Jason. It's nice to have you here. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's absolutely delightful to be here. I'm terribly impressed by my own bio. Your own bio is very impressive. I was a little bit intimidated, I've got to be honest. (laughs) Oh, right. Well, uh, don't be intimidated. I was a blue dog in a TV series, and blue dogs, cartoon blue dogs in TV series should not intimidate anybody. Cartoon blue dogs. Okay, start there. Start me off. Tell oh, me right. That. Yeah, well, that's actually somewhere in the middle of that entire thing. In fact, the cartoon blue dog thing was what was the 10,000th biggest site in the world okay. in 2007. Uh, with my ex wife, we created two characters, cartoon characters called Buwa and Koala. And I tried to get uh, book publishers to publish the book and record companies to release the record. And they all said, well, there are so many cartoon or so many kind of pairs of characters there's no point it's never going to work there's Tom and Jerry there's kind of custard and what was he called rhubarb and custard rhubarb and custard yes Uh, and I'm the kind of person who thinks no I think this is a good idea I think we've got something here and I'm going to make it happen whatever happens so I actually bought a a copy of Flash Macromedia Flash at the time in 1998 the year Google was incorporated created the site created the animations made the songs made games and it grew and grew and grew and grew over the 10 years and we literally had five million visits a month and Uh, Yeah, 100 million page views a month, every month in 2007 for a site for kids aged up to 10. Uh, And Alexa officially ranked us as 10,000th biggest site in the world in terms of visits. That's a pretty impressive accolade to have. I think you should have that on the T-shirt and a red T-shirt for stage next time. Yeah, well, the red T-shirt, which nobody can see because this is sound, I'm actually wearing a red shirt, is to get away from the blue dog, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, so I just have a million questions about the blue dog scenario, but the main one I'm thinking of is did Flash and the end of Flash kind of do for that site or did you just decide to say, okay, we've done that next thing? Um, well, in fact, it's a really sad story. I, 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 uh, I had a business partner who bought into the company. It was my company. I allowed him into the company and it turns out I was a cartoon blue dog and I began to believe I was a cartoon blue dog uh, and he completely ripped me off. So um, lesson for anybody who wants to become a cartoon blue dog is 
don't sign up with a business partner. Uh, that's that. I mean, I think that's the thing as well. Is is I talked to somebody in the in the industry, and they were saying the people who actually do these TV series because I don't want to generalize about an entire group of people. They're saying a lot of it is that people who create that kind of content tend to be terribly naive. Mm. So it's a really easy target for a businessman or business person. Um, and I'm, it's a, it's a sad story, but in fact, I think we should always focus on, it was a phenomenal success. I'm incredibly proud of what we did. Uh, and the TV series was actually done by ITV International and it was shown around the world and it's still available online. So you can actually still watch it. So it's not like something that disappeared off the face of the universe. Um, yeah. So it was really positive. And that's what got me into digital marketing. Awesome. Well, I guess that covers a lot of the the kind of background question we were going to start with. But uh, tell me specifically what interests you about search and search engines and that part of the work that you do. Yeah, well, I mean, the Blue Dog and the Yellow Koala in 1998 started when Google didn't really have any market share. It was a Stanford University, I think it was, kind of experiment that turned into a company. So they incorporated in September 1998, and that was the month I built my first Flash game, um, which was stunningly, stunningly rubbish. Um, and then after three months, I'd managed to get good enough, and we released the actual site in December. So it took me three months to develop anything that we, I actually wanted to show anybody. Um, and from there on in, in fact, at the time, I mean, anybody who was in the internet at that time, you had like InfoSeek and Excite and Magdalian or whatever it was called and Hotbot and Lycos. And... I remember Lycos. Yeah, and, and there, were, there were literally like 40 different engines of which 10 were reasonably big. InfoSeek, crumbs. Um, and we would create one HTML page for each engine and each variant of each keyword, including plurals. So if I had kid game, then I would also have to have kids games. Mm -hmm. And then I would have to have kid games, kids game. So you'd have all these variants by letter and then multiply that by 10 engines minimum, 40 engines potentially if you wanted to hit the entire market. And you ended up with tens of thousands of pages for a very small keyword set to actually rank. Uh, and it became very quickly, very boring. And it was all about counting words in pages. It was stunningly uninteresting. Um, and Google came along and brought links into the whole kind of game and changed it from just counting words in pages to counting words in pages and counting inbound links. And that's what they did for 15 years. And if you look now, you think, you know, counting links and counting words and pages sounds pretty stupid now. But in 1998 to 2000, it was just counting words, which is even more stupid. Yeah. Uh, and today we're obviously onto something completely different, which is where I found it became incredibly interesting. Um, the, the, the whole kind of, I, I stuck with SEO because I wanted to, I, what we did was focus on Google and we were lucky or smart, depending on how you want to look at it. I said to the people I was working with, we're just going to focus on Google because we can't create thousands and thousands of pages, complete waste of time. And if mm -hmm. we focus on Google, at least kind of we know where we're going and we can, we can not spend our entire life building these stupid pages with word counts in them. And we can actually spend some time making some decent content with blue dogs and yellow koalas, which we did. 
Uh, and I think kind of it was a combination of the two. It was a nice balance and we were lucky to hit that balance. And, and as Google grew, of course, we grew with them because we were focusing on them. Um, so we grew with Google. Google's got no idea that, you know, I was growing alongside, alongside them. But for me, it was kind of this big, uh, important thing. And, and the more they, the more Google succeeded, the more we succeeded, um, which was a, a happy coincidence. And uh, I'm incredibly happy I made that choice. Yeah, I mean, there there is a danger of spending a lot of time reminiscing, but uh, I I first got into the game with uh, a little book that was less than A6 size, and it was titled Get Into Bed with Google. And it had wow. all of those horrendous tactics in it that we would now cringe about, where you would put uh, keywords on the page in the same color as the background, and you would have exact match URLs, and yeah. when um, when keyword domains were a thing. Um, and all of that. And so that was uh, for me, probably like 2006, seven ish, something like that. And um, mm. I just remember being fascinated by the the power that you had to, to manipulate essentially what was an engine then displaying your content to a user. And, and that's sort of what got me hooked. But um, yeah, and, and that was, that was, I, I, mean, I, I, I completely get that and seeing the effect of what you were doing was yeah. having on the fact that you were being shown people coming to your site. But the other thing I remember is the is the the whole kind of, it's data lakes and data rivers, which mm. said like that sounds a bit complicated, but actually isn't. And what was happening at the time is Google would go and collect all the information, stick it in this big lake, and then another machine would come around, sort through the lake. And so you would have to wait three to four weeks every time you made a change before mm. that change actually took effect because you would have the first machine that would collect it and the second machine that would go through it and re-index it and push it all back into the actual live index. So you didn't know if what you had done would have any effect for several weeks. Yeah. And then I'd... data rivers is the idea that the data flows by the machine and it grabs the stuff as it goes by. So you've got this almost immediate effect and people get impatient after you know a day and we're getting impatient that we're not ranking. Mm. That's a really interesting concept. Is that something that that is your way of thinking about it? Because I've not heard the the whole concept of lakes and rivers before. Oh, I, I went to a, a, a in France. I mean, I, I live in France, and I'm an English person who's now become French. Um, and I work within the French community, and with, I knew some people at Google a few years ago, and they invited me to one of their seminar thingies, and they explained the Google Cloud platform which I now use. So they did a very good, I mean, obviously a bit of a sales pitch, but even so. Mm. And they explained the evolution of the technology from 1998 to 2017 when I did the seminar course. And that's all part of it. Basically what we're seeing today is that they developed the, the technology to be able to do what they wanted to do in the first place. And mm. in 1998, they were saying, we want to be an assistive engine. We want to be the Star Trek machine that guesses what you want before you even said it. I mean, answer engine is one thing. You've got search engine, then answer engine, then assistive engine, and then predictive engine. Mm. And right at the beginning, they knew they wanted to be a predictive engine. They were saying, we just don't have the technology to do it. So over these last 20 years, they've just developed the, the, the technology little by little to be able to do what they wanted to do because the technology could not cope with the amount of data they were collecting. So they had to do data lakes and then sort through the data lakes with this big sludge boat, whatever you would call it. 
And then they said, right, well, we want to make this faster. So they developed a machine that could deal with data rivers as the data flew past it. And my concept of that is that the, the, what they've got is this kind of gold panning thing where the, the data flows past. And if the gold panning robot sees something that is a nugget, it will just fish it out of the water on the way past. So if you can convince that robot that your content tends to be full of nuggets, it will tend to pick your content out faster than your competition, which goes into the lake and waits a few weeks. That's kind of my concept of how it works, but I think whether it's true or not is, uh, you know, it's debatable, but it's certainly an important way to look at it is saying, if you can convince the machine to trust you, you've nailed it. That that trust is such an important thing, and the the bit that I wanted to bring on bring us on to next is the um, the three pillar approach that that you and I have been talking about, and you've written about before. Uh, you know, understand understandability, credibility, and deliverability. Just talk me through that structure a bit because we've got marketers listening of all skill levels and and all backgrounds. So just give me the the top level what that means and why trust is important. Yeah, I'm sorry for going on about data rivers and no, data lakes. No, not at all. I, I share the the enjoyment of the geekery, but I uh, I also want to take it up a level to to guys and girls who might not be so so in the weeds with search. Right. Well, if they stuck through that last boring bit, we can come back to what we were saying right at the beginning, which is they wanted to be more than anything. If you if you look at search, it's basically you search for something and they offer you up a list of possible solutions to your problem or answers to your question, and you choose which one you want. And that was the 10 blue links, when it would just say, here's 10 blue links. You choose the one that you think is the best. We've put them in order of what we think is the best, but we're really just suggesting things. Answer engines, which is the next step up, is saying, here's what we think is the answer. And that's when you see the answer at the top or the knowledge panel on the right-hand side. And they're saying, our machines have determined that this is the best answer for you. Mm -hmm. Then you get assistive engines, which is saying not only is it the best answer, but we're going to help you interact with that answer, for example, by putting a video in the SERP. So you can just click on it and you can find the exact place in the video where you want it to go. So they're assisting you on your journey to find the solution to the problem you have asked to Google. Because remember, when you type into Google or speak into Google, you're asking a question that you want an answer to or you're giving it a problem that you want the solution to. And its role is to get you to that solution as efficiently as possible. Mm. And the last one is the predictive engine, which is where we're going next. If that wasn't enough for you already with Discover, where it's predicting what you're going to want. So it will push content towards you that it thinks you will be interested in. And that's where it gets a bit mad. But they wanted to do that. That's the Star Trek machine. Captain Kirk <laughs> doesn't know he needs his stun gun mm. but the machine tells him to pick his stun gun up because the machine knows that he's going to need it in 10 minutes when the Klingons turn up I've been watching too much Star Trek oh dear <laughs> um, Star Trek fan here <laughs> um yeah and and so we're moving towards that and I think that's kind of the really important aspect and then we can come on to this three pillar approach which mm. kind of takes the scary away from that it makes it less because you're going, how am I going to approach this? I can't approach it because I don't, I can't get my head around the entire concept and its global idea. And if you say, right, Google has three basic problems. And if you can be empathetic, not empathetic to Google as a machine, but empathetic to what it's trying to do and the problems it's facing, you can definitely start to provide help 
to Google. And the three problems are it needs to understand who you are, what you do, and who your audience is. If mm-hmm. it can't understand that, it can't possibly offer you up as a solution to its users, especially in a, in a predictive sense, i.e. it's predicting what you want. It needs to understand what you are offering to its users in mm-hmm. order to offer you as a solution to their problems. And you can listen back to that at half speed if it was too fast for you, because I just realized it didn't make sense to me. I've said it so many times. And the next thing is once it's understood who you are, what you offer, and who your audience is, then it can start saying, okay, this is a potential solution, and it's a decent solution. But I've understood you, and I've understood your competitors. So I've got three possible solutions, all of which seem about the same. I've understood them all. And I'm going to pick the one that's the most credible the one that I think will best satisfy my user. And remember, Google's users, sorry, your audience who are coming through Google are actually Google's users. They're Google's clients. Google's recommending you. Google's giving you their traffic. It's not something that is yours by right, in inverted commas. So Google's saying, I need to understand. Then I need to be confident you can supply and provide that solution. And if I'm confident that your solution is going to be better than your competition's, I will put you above the competition. But then it asks itself a third question. Mm-hmm. Can you actually deliver? And that can be deliver the video, deliver the, the text content, deliver the product. Are you going to satisfy my user? And if you've got those three nailed, you're the recommended answer, you're the recommended solution, Google will put you number one. So, yeah, there's an awful lot to take in there. And I have about a million different tangents that we could go off on. But I think we should Sorry. we should probably. No, no, no. It's it's great because I, I mostly want to ask you about, uh, you know, the future of SEO as we think of it now and whether whether the mindset needs to change completely. But, you know, let, let's not go down that rabbit hole just yet. Um, I wanted to unpack the the understanding bit. So. If we're thinking about uh, Google and its ability to understand, there, there's got to be a mix there between the technical side of it and the content, the, you brilliant. know, the actual words and the media. So um, tell me a little bit more about where you think the balance lies between what is displayed on page and how it's technically delivered. Oh, I, I like the way you presented that. That's rather good. Um, I, I think... The technical side, I mean, we, we, it's lucky we talked about the historical stuff because tech was all it was about, tech and counting words. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you didn't have a tech platform that delivered your HTML incredibly fast uh, and you're, you're, you were relying on your developers for your SEO, and that's so much less the case today, uh, to schematize, to, 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 to make a gross generalization, let's say SEO was 80% technical six years ago. It's now 20% technical, which is great news for everybody who's in marketing. And I think, you know, it's good. I'm happy. I think that's a good thing. Uh, So, but from a technical perspective, you really need to make sure that Google can access and index all your content. Mm -hmm. Once you've got that, you've got the platform to start trying to get Google to understand. So I think the technical aspect, once Google can access your content, you're then saying, how can I help Google to understand? And there are actually multiple ways of doing so. Uh, One is traditionally inbound links. An inbound link from a relevant site to a page or one relevant page to another relevant page indicates to Google that your page talks about the same thing as the other page. 
Mm-hmm. So it help, if it's understood the other page, it will therefore understand your, your page, and that's a little bit of help for it. Secondly is clear copywriting. Mm-hmm. I think we all forget um, how unclear we are. Uh, we, we write lots of guff around stuff, and we think it's great. And poetry is a typical example of something Google will simply not understand. Uh, and it isn't, you know, it, it's not a bad thing. But remember, machines have no imagination, no sense of humor, and no sense of irony. And it will take everything you write firsthand, and, and there's lots and lots and lots of examples of this. But if you write what we call semantic triples, and Bill Slousey calls tuples, which goes further than triples, but we'll stick to triples for the moment, sounds really complicated. Dawn Anderson talks about this, and it's, it blew, blew my mind when she talked about it. It's actually just subject, verb, object. It's really simple. Mm-hmm. And if you can avoid separating them too much, the machine can get a grip of it. So if I say, Jason Barnard is a digital marketer, Google gets Jason Barnard thing is a relationship digital marketer. It's got the two, the subject verb and the object, it's understood. If I say Jason Barnard, the beautiful English, humorous, fun person is a expert, super duper, 18 year career digital marketer. Jason Barnard and digital marketer are so far apart from each other that mm. the machine's completely lost the thread by the, by the time it gets to the end of it. And to be honest with you, as a human being, you've probably lost the thread of it by the time you get to the end of it. But I feel good because I've just stroked my ego rather nicely. <laughs> um, and we, we tend to do that. But in fact, you can just turn it all around and say, the most wonderful human being in the entire world, Jason Barnard, is a digital marketer and he has 18 years of experience. It's exactly the same thing. But that Jason Barnard, digital marketer, and the relationship is, uh, is all together and the machine can get it. That's really interesting because I I absolutely love Dawn and her ability to think about She's things. Genius. Fantastic. Yeah. We were we're both MSC alumni from Manchester Metropolitan. So oh, right. okay. Um but I think there's a tendency to feel like Google is so sophisticated and so advanced in its ability to understand that we kind of don't really realize if we write uh you know long convoluted english that it that it just can't get it mm. i think I, I, th- I think there is a tendency i mean there is a tendency within the industry to look at what google can potentially do through its patents and through the work that they're doing um and they can do on a small corpus of text for example wikipedia relatively small corpus of text and and we look at that and we think okay they can do that if we give them one page but we fail to think about what does it do when it's billions of these things. The sheer mass of information means that what it can theoretically do at a small scale is incredibly difficult to do at a large scale. So however good we think it is, and it potentially is on a small scale, on that incredibly large scale, especially when you mix in technical problems, mix in loading problems, mix in data lakes and data river problems, all of that makes it just more and more complicated. So you want to make it as simple as possible as for the machine. Yeah. One thing I do like about that kind of entire thing is I don't mean, at, at no point do we need to be boring by being simple. Mm. You don't have to write convoluted sentences to be interesting. You can actually be simple and incredibly interesting and incredibly convincing. It's just really difficult to do. So do you think now that technical SEO is is less important than it was 20 20- you know, 15, 20 years ago, that if you've got a a piece of content that is exceptional and valuable, 
but poorly delivered, it will Google will still be able to figure it out, or do you think there is still a, a barrier there? There is, there is still a barrier because you can't just throw kind of Google still relies on structure, and mm -hmm. and what's interesting is structure is not necessarily technical. Mm -hmm. You don't need a developer to write a title, a paragraph, a subtitle, another paragraph, a sub-subtitle, another paragraph, then another subtitle, then another paragraph. That's headings, subheadings. It's how we should be writing as human beings. It's how we understand as human beings. Google relies on the headings and the subheadings and the paragraphs below them to understand how the page is chunked. I mean, Google talk about, um, well, WordPress talk about blocks. Yeah. Yoast yeah. talk about blocks. Gutenberg talks about blocks. Microsoft talk about chunks. And I talked to uh, Mr. Bingbot, who's called Fabrice Canal, who explained how Bingbot works, which was really awesome. He's a really cool guy. Um, and, and when you understand kind of the process it goes through, it's looking for patterns. And if it can find patterns, it can find, it, it can actually start trying to analyze those words. But if it can't find the patterns to identify where the chunks of content are, it can never even get started trying to understand. So all of the stuff that Dawn talks about just can't kick in. Mm. And he said something really interesting that I, I, I was quite pleased with is um, John Mueller from Google said, we don't really care about HTML5 and we don't care about the, 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 the details of um, how the page is actually structured. We can figure it out. And Fabrice Canal said, yes, we can figure it out. He's Bing Bot. And so, you know, he's the guy who actually builds the thing. Yeah. And he was saying, yes, we can figure it out. But if you have something that's structured in the same way as absolutely everybody else, we're more confident we figured it out. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that there was a, a confidence element there. Right. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Sorry. Right. So ooh, go for it. Now, if you're using WordPress, WordPress is 30% of the web. Mm -hmm. Whether WordPress is good or not is actually not the question. But if you use WordPress, Bingbot and Googlebot have already seen this one in every three pages they visited. So yeah. there's a pattern that's going to kind of fit in. And unless you're Amazon, you can't build your own system and expect these machines to understand how you've built it. Because my logic is not the same as yours, it's not the same as somebody else's and so on and so forth. Number two with WordPress, if you started installing things like FlexGrid, which is an example I absolutely hate because I've got a client who's got it and is doing my <laughs> yeah. um, Once you move away from that core, you're taking away the patterns the machine recognizes. And the further away from the core you get, the less patterns it sees and the less confident it becomes in what it's understood. And what we fail to realize is the bot isn't simply this machine that comes around and collects information. It annotates everything it finds before putting it in the database. And all the other algorithms use that annotation to access the information. So if the machine cannot annotate correctly, the algorithms can never get hold of your content to even begin to think about ranking it. So that's your immediate need is to make sure, sorry, I'm going on, but... Go for it, carry on. Is to make sure that the machine is comfortable with what you're presenting. Yeah. Yeah, I I hadn't thought about it like that at all. And, uh, you know, the, the structure that WordPress offers you has, you know, well, for, like you said, for 30% of the sites out there, been exactly what they need. So it makes sense Ooh. that there is a pattern there. Do you think that by being in a known CMS like WordPress that you are already ahead of the game? 
Yeah, uh, John Alderson from Yoast says, you know, why would no, why would people not use WordPress? Why would anyone want to reinvent anything? WordPress does it all. And mm. the, the only thing you need to remember with WordPress is it won't do it exactly the way you wanted it. You have to accept some compromises. <laughs> and if you want exactly what you wanted, then you can do that and you can pay a fortune for a developer and you can rely on developers. With WordPress, you don't rely on developers half as much as you would if you built it yourself. Yeah. But the price you will pay for that perfection in your own mind is a great disadvantage, both in terms of future development and that every time you move forward, you have to redevelop everything. WordPress is actually packaged, so it actually moves forward. And it provides with lots of things that you would not have if you didn't do it yourself. You just have to look at the number of Gutenberg blocks that have come up in the last three years as standard to see how fast that can move forward. Uh, but you're also putting your, yourself at a disadvantage in the machine. And I'll come back to the idea. It's not that it can't get your content. And it's not that it can't understand your content. It's it's less confident in that understanding. So let's talk about credibility and trust for a minute there. So we, we've we got the understanding. We have... Oh, sorry, just one, one thing about understanding. Before we move on to credibility, one thing about understanding is uh, people talk a lot about schema markup, and I think that's very technical. It's very tech, tech, tech. And people get really scared of it, and I, I understand that. I can relate to that because when you dig into it, it's really complicated. But... Mm -hmm. If you look at something like Yoast, it does your basic schema markup for you. You don't need to be a technician. You just need to fill in the fields. And it really isn't complicated. So don't be scared by it. And if you want to move to the next level, you look at something like WordLift or an Italian company who do uh, an astonishing platform that takes it to another level. And what I would advise people is don't try to understand schema markup. Mm -hmm. Use it through one of these tools. It's like WordPress. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't try to be an expert in something you're not going to be an expert in. Because when you talk to Jono Alderson, who's the guy who does all the, the scheme markup at Yoast, you know, he, he doesn't sleep at night because he's trying to figure out how he should present it. He said, a lot of the decisions we make are philosophical. Mm, how do we use this to express the information to a machine? Mm. So it isn't like Jono Alderson's right, Jason Barnard's wrong. It's Jono Alderson's approaching it from one point of view, I'm approaching it from another. The fact is, Yoast is on 40% of all WordPress sites. So Google and Bingbot see Yoast on 14, 13, 14% of every single page they ever see, they see Yoast. So that's going to be the standard, whether we like it or not. Yeah. So there's, there's no point in trying to develop your own custom schema app because you might as well use what is out there because it will do the job that you are asking it to do. That's what I would do. But I mean, obviously, if somebody wants to go out and develop a schema app for themselves, they quite welcome to do so you know <laughs> if somebody does it and it's a new version for wordpress let me know because i am always curious yeah i mean i think kind of the, the, the we come back to the idea of saying oh i want to do this really specific thing yeah and you have to just ask yourself is it worth the pain or I can i spend that time doing something more useful like creating a great video or doing a great podcast like this one oh <laughs> um I mean, that is a huge issue that sits above all of this is that commercial awareness of what do I do and what do I put my time into that is going to get me the most return. And I think uh, let's work our way through the three pillars and and then we might come back to that sort of bigger commercial decision. So yeah, well, cred credibility the, and trust. Let's yeah, go down well, well, credibility, I mean, I would say rather than writing that tiny piece of schema markup that you think is going to make yourself look really clever, which I do all the time. So, I mean, I'm insulting <laughs> myself. Um Go and go and make sure your clients are satisfied and they're giving you great reviews. 
yeah. Interact with them, spend some time with them, talk to them, send them emails, ask them for reviews, get those reviews because reviews are not only a sign of credibility, that you will satisfy Google's user when Google recommends you as a solution to that user for their problem. But also Google... Go I was going to ask just about platforms. Do you think there is a, a bias for Google reviews or are we safe on any platform? They're all open to spamming. Mm. Um, Google's got partnerships with loads of platforms, including Trustpilot and I can't remember, lots and lots of them, you know, Avi Verifier in France. I can't remember any of them off the top of my head. Um, so Google isn't just relying on itself. It can't do that because... It, it, it's, a, it's a walled garden, it's a closed part of the internet, and it can't ignore all the stuff, all the people who don't actually hang out on Google all the time. You know, as digital marketers or marketers, we tend to obsess about Google and we forget that my grandma doesn't even know what Google is. She installed, you know, she opened up her Windows PC and she's got Microsoft Edge and she's got no idea of anything outside Bing. Mm. Um, and one thing that um, Fabrice Canel from Bing pointed out to me that I hadn't thought about was that because of security issues and uh, network management, a lot of large corporations impose Microsoft Edge on their yep. employees. So if you're a B2B business, Google might have 95% of the market, but that 5%, a lot of it is going to be grandmas and uh, and, and um, employees at corporations that is a top tip for b2b marketers if you are struggling with your mm. google ppc activity or any of your ads try microsoft ads because there's a strong possibility if your audience is in a highly regulated market they're probably on edge yeah they're on edge in both sense of the market both sense of the word. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and then credibility, obviously, you've got the reviews. That's incredibly important. And you go beyond that and you're looking at EAT, or expertise, authority and trust, which is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Uh, I talk about credibility because it's simpler. Uh, what expertise, authority and trust do, does is break it down into the three areas is saying you have to prove to Google that you're an expert in your field, that you're authoritative and that you're trustworthy. Um, and that all goes by I mean, obviously, reviews help with trust, but also um, writing true and helpful information on your website proves expertise. Mm -hmm. Authority would be that people within your industry who Google recognizes as experts share and interact with your content. Influencer marketing, basically. Yeah. But influencer marketing within a field where that person is seen as an expert, not just some big mouth on Twitter. So it's a little bit like, and that's quite interesting. I hadn't thought of that. It, it's it's like um, I, I, the Sun. I can't think of a, a British paper, but the Sun will have absolutely boatloads of inbound links. Mm -hmm. That means it's popular. It doesn't mean it's trustworthy. Yeah. And Google are desperately looking to weight links and weight information according to trustworthiness and authoritativeness and expertise as opposed to popularity. So there's another top tip is links great, but you want it to be expert, authoritative and trustworthy within your niche market. And yeah. that's when we come back to does Google favor any particular platform? Uh, if, if it was a pet food shop, petfoodreviews.com pet food might potentially be much more powerful for you than Google reviews. I think that's a, an interesting thing that you can extrapolate into local search as well when you're thinking about links. Yeah. If you've got a link from, you know, Joe Blog's cafe in 
some tiny village somewhere and you're trying to get exposure there, then that's going to be way more valuable than your yellow pages, if that is even still a thing. Um, probably not. There. It's probably not. I think they do still have some dwindling digital presence. But do you know, I actually got a phone book through the door the other day and I thought, what's the point? Oh, it's what? a good doorstop. It's, it's a good fire lighter. Brilliant. Oh, and in fact, you can take sorry all of that another step further. I mean, if, if we're talking about Google and Android phones is a really interesting kind of point on that in the credibility stakes in local search, which is what made me think of it, mm. is Google measures how long you stay in a shop. It measures if you go back to that shop. So you don't just need reviews, you need repeat visits. And if, if it knows I live in the 12th arrondissement in Paris, and I go into the cafe next door, and I never go back, that's like a one-star review. If I've got an Android phone, obviously, if I'm Apple, then it would never know. Uh, but if I just keep going back to the same restaurant or the same cafe day after day after day, it's going, well, that's obviously pretty good. So that idea of credibility and trustworthiness is not just the explicit stuff that people are saying about you. It's the implicit actions of people, both with their Android phone, but also visiting your site, coming back to your site, bouncing off the site, and all, all the, the user behavior Mm. And that we come back to the, the the idea of these masses of data that this company can handle. Um, I don't think most of us can even begin to imagine it. I mean, I certainly can't. And they manage the state and they extrapolate and understand so much more than we actually think on such a macro level. And uh, I interviewed, there's a thing called the whole page algorithm, which we can't talk about today because it will freak everybody out. But... Um, I was talking to Nathan Chalmers from Bing, who runs the whole page algorithm. And he, in an interview, I mean, I wasn't just chatting with him in the pub. I'm not his best mate. <laughs> um, and he was saying, I said to him, but how can you possibly know for a search query? Because I'm obsessed by brand search. What appears when you search somebody's mm -hmm. brand name or their personal name? And I said, how can you possibly know with my name? Where the search volume is so small. Mm. How can you possibly know what's going to be appropriate? Because he basically says he wants to build the perfect page. He said, but we don't look at the search volume for your name and the user behavior on that search. We look at the mass of data. We aggregate it and we figure out what the person who would search your name would most like, given the entirety of all the data we've got. So they're wow. segmenting people. And saying overall behavior within the market of this person, Jason Barnard, we have understood is going to be this. Therefore, we can propose that. And we don't need anything like 20,000 searches a month. We can do with 10 searches a month because it actually doesn't matter because we're not even looking at that. That is just absolutely mind blowing, isn't it? It is stunning, isn't it? <laughs> I think what it does for me is just reassure me that and hopefully reassure all of our audience that there is no point in chasing the algorithm. You just need to focus on your content and what you're delivering for your audience and making sure that your footprint is in the place that's going to be most relevant for the people that you're trying to reach. It, for me, sounds like marketing, it. doesn't it? That's exactly where I was going with this. It sounds like we should just be doing marketing rather Sorry. than... No, it's it's exactly where I was going with it because I I, I ruined your, your punchline. You were saying it, so I was just sitting there in awe, just thinking, "Aren't you saying that incredibly well?" And I thought, "Just sounds like marketing." <laughs> and I'm like, Sorry, I ruined it for you. No, not at all. It's fine. It, it, it's exactly where I was going because I think, I think maybe even as as not as long ago as five or three years ish, maybe 
I would have thought of SEO as a separate strategy. It would yeah. have linked into content marketing and, um, you know, brands and all of that, but it would have been right. What is our SEO strategy? What are our outbound? What is our outreach going to be to get links? What content do we need to produce for these SERPs? Um, you know, and it feels like the the more sophisticated the algorithms get, the less we should be chasing them, which is kind of obvious to say, but I feel like there are still a lot of people who build their strategies around chasing the algorithm. And I think if that's one of the takeaways from today that I want people to get is, is let's not do that because it's not going to be effective. Right. And if we can add another layer on top of that is um, when you understand how machine learning works, you realize that chasing the algorithm is a totally pointless exercise. Because if you ask somebody at Bing or at Google, how does the algorithm work? They don't know. And it's, yeah. it's, you kind of say, oh, ha, 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 isn't that funny? Not you personally, obviously, but you know, one, one tends to think. Fun at some point. But machine learning is basically, they label lots of data. They get human beings to sort data, information, into boxes that have labels on them. They give that to the machine. They give the machine a mathematical formula, and they give it a, um, a goal, mm. something it needs to achieve. And the machine then sits down with the mathematical formula and all this data and says, with this data, I can see this information. Now, with this new data I've never seen before, I'm going to find the same solution that you humans have found and sorted out for me in this example set. Mm. It gets to the solution. And then what Google and Bing do is then collect all that information and get some human beings to sort through it all again and say, well, this was right, this was wrong. This was good, this was bad. And they feed it back into the machine as additional data that either supports what it's doing or contradicts what it's doing. So it's corrective data or supportive data or affirmative data, if you like. Mm -hmm. And they feed it back in, the machine goes, okay, that was wrong. Oh, I'll adjust myself a little bit then. And then obviously they also kind of, the human beings say, well, we got the mathematical formula a little bit wrong, but you know, we'll change that a little bit. But what um, what the, the my, um, Frederick Dubu from Bing was saying is you shouldn't focus on ranking factors you should focus on the metrics we're using to measure the success of the machine. I think that's really interesting and really key to what I want people to take away from this episode, which is to just focus on what your users are doing and the content that they want, because everything else is secondary. And yeah. if you're delivering the content they want, users will stay on site. They will share it. You will get links. You will get people walking through your door and staying yeah. there. And, and, and the, I mean, the other thing is whether Google and Bing have yet got to the point where they can achieve their goal of giving the per perfect solution to their user's problem is kind of a moot point because they're going to get there or they're going that way. Mm. So if you're playing in that same direction at all times with them, the fact that they're not there yet doesn't mean you're, you're not going to rank at all today. It just means you won't rank as well as in inverted commas you should. But in the future, you're going to progressively rank better and better and better and be proposed, suggested more and more as a solution. And so what you should be looking at is what is their goal? What goal are they setting for that machine? And what metrics are they using to measure it? Yeah. Um, let's move on to deliverability, the last of our, our pillars. If we've got Talking any listeners left after, after I know. all that. Our, our single listener who's probably still out there is is my sister-in-law because she's a wonderful champion and cheerleader for me. So thanks, Yay. Emily. Thanks, Emily. I know you're still there. <laughs> um, no, let's talk de deliverability for a minute. Um, and the, as this is the, the third crucial part of our strategy and what we want people to take away from it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually focused on uh, understanding the credibility for a couple of years, and I was thinking there has to be something else. It can't just be that. Um, a friend of mine who's a, a teacher in A-level said everything has to be in threes with A-level students. If you tell them something in twos, it doesn't seem important. If you tell them in fours, they forget the fourth one. So it always has to be in threes, and it works every time, and he was right. Um, so now I do everything in threes. If I've got four, he said, just just shoehorn the fourth one into the third one, and you're away. And if you've only got two, invent a new one that doesn't actually matter, but it will get people to kind of stay on board. Um, and, and in fact, that, that idea of threes comes back to a lot of things, including um, semantic triples that I talked about earlier on. It's subject, verb, object. It's three things. That's how our brains function. So threes is logical. So um, deliverability is the one I came up with. And it isn't the third one I invented just to make up the numbers, I promise. <laughs> just to be clear, this is um, not and, and a lot of this is technical. It's making sure your site is mobile friendly, that it delivers quickly, that the user has a great user experience, that the delivery of the content is up to the promise that mm. you've made by the understanding and the credibility. And if Google is doing on-SERP stuff, which people complain about and I understand, if they want to deliver the video on the on the on the SERP and it's a choice between your video and your competitor's video, they will deliver the one that's the most deliverable, the most suitable for their audience. And remember, I mean, you can complain about on SERP SEO, the fact that Google is showing results more and more in the SERP, but they're doing what you're doing, which is trying to satisfy their user as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And if it's on the SERP, that's what they'll do because they're trying to satisfy a client much in the same way that you are. So it's a bit kind of two-faced to be complaining at them for doing yeah. what, in fact, you're trying to do at the same time. You're just saying, I want the traffic. But use yeah. it as a branding opportunity. You're not going to change the situation. It's a bit Confucian. You, you can't change it. You need to learn to, to live with it. And that means create the content that Google can deliver in an adequate manner and make sure it's branded. So your brand gets across. That's the least you can get. It's free advertising. Look at it that way. Um, obviously, what you had before is not as good as what you had. Uh, sorry, not what you have now is not as good as what you had before, but it's not going to go back to that. So there's no point in, in crying over spilt milk, as we say. Um, so deliverability is that idea of saying when the user comes to the site, Google has to be convinced that the user will have a great experience. If it wants to deliver the content on the SERP, it needs to know that it can do so. Mm -hmm. And if it's sending a client to you to buy something, it wants to be sure that you will deliver the product on the day you said you would deliver it. You will deliver the service, the solution when they actually pay for it. Because once again, these people are Google's clients. Yeah. And I think that's quite easy to forget when you're coming from the perspective of, I just want the traffic. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about how a marketer would approach a, a search strategy today. Um, you know, if you if you are on uh, you know the beginning of your career and you're coming into a brand and you know you have to start from scratch on a search strategy, I'm feeling like as a result of our conversation, you would prioritize the stuff that you would do for brand, you would prioritize your content marketing activities, and then your your technical delivery is not nearly 50% of your focus anymore. It's maybe I don't know, 20%, like yeah. we were saying. Yeah, uh, make sure that Google can get at the content so it can actually see what you're offering. Make yeah. sure you can't, I mean, but obviously, yeah, let's say 20% on that, you've got 40% on your content 
um, which all has to be branded. You have to make sure you've got a brand message systematically and that that brand message is consistent across the board. And the other 40% is on uh, satisfying the client once you get them. Yeah. Because Google's looking over your shoulder all the time. And it's looking over your shoulder, not only on your site, but on your social channels, on your audience's social channels, on their Gmail accounts. Mm. It's looking over your shoulder in places you can't even see or think about. It's looking over your shoulder on their Android machine when they walk in and out of your shop. Yeah. I mean, maybe even if, if they run out of the shop stomping their feet and shouting really loud, rude words, maybe, maybe. It can get that. I mean, obviously, I'm exaggerating, but that That's whole kind like of thought, isn't it? But it it's not far out of the realm of feasibility. <laughs> no. So yeah, I think kind of, and that's the thing is, if you over time, at least, if you if you attract people with this great content, let's let's say that the twenty percent technical, you can deliver the content in a in a practical sense online, is done. If your content is amazing, you've got that forty percent. You've you've put all your money in there. But then you never deliver the product at the end of it. Either the content isn't satisfactory, so the Google the, the user bounces and goes to your competitors. Google sees that. Uh, obviously, it's a very bad signal. Um, but then if your users complain about you on review sites all the time, Google will just end up saying, well, actually, it's really rubbish sending them there because even if they seem to be satisfied in the first instance when I sent them, they've just come back and complained about it. So I'll send them to the competitor next time. So you actually really do need that kind of balanced marketing strategy. And you can't approach it and say, I'm just doing SEO. You have to go and talk to the sales staff. You have to talk to the after-sales staff. You have to talk to the support staff. You have to make sure that that the message is getting through to everybody and that you're satisfying your client. And just one last point about that is when you start talking to these people within your organization, the sales, after sales and support staff, they start to tell you what the clients actually want and need, which allows you to better focus your content to attract the right people who will be satisfied with what you're offering. And then you've got this virtuous circle and you're winning the game all the way around. You're getting less traffic. You're not going for the volume, but the traffic that does come is incredible. The traffic, excuse me, the people who do come are satisfied. (laughs) Google sees it and Google just keeps sending you people. That's so relevant to an episode I did recently about the the convergence of marketing and customer experience. Right. Two are inevitably going to become closer bedfellows than they ever have been because for exactly the reason we were just saying, you can't, as a marketer, develop a successful SEO strategy when you're getting a bunch of rubbish reviews saying your product's crap, it's not delivered on time, and I can't get through to your customer services. Because anything that you do in search is going to be negated by the power of those negative reviews. So you have to have that, that ability to connect with your ops department, with your sales department to say, this is really bad, and I, as a marketer, cannot overcome this on my own mm-hmm. uh so you have to come at it from that customer experience that holistic perspective so well yeah. I mean, it, it's all interconnected and yeah. you you, you uh, once again even if you can get away with it today because google set the goal and we know where that goal is it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer so even if you can get away with it today you probably won't be getting away with it tomorrow or the day after or the day after or whatever it might be look at what google's trying to achieve be empathetic to its problems, so help it solve its problems, solving its users' problems, and you're away. Um, seems to me to be incredibly simple. Obviously, the, 
the actual implementation is incredibly complicated. But mm. I'm I'm a big fan of having a philosophical overview of it, so that you don't just focus on the little details. Have I got the exact right sentence in my uh, paragraph? Mm. Obviously, you you need to deal with the details. But if you don't have an overview of everything, you're just doing lots of details, and they never fit together. And that jigsaw puzzle never makes sense to Google. Doesn't make sense to you probably either for that matter. Well, I did have uh, one final question to finish on because uh, we're almost out of time is how do you address that age old question of justifying the investment in a search strategy? Um, it, it depends on the client or the, the, the boss or the person. Um, where people are, or where, where a company is willing to put its money or people are willing to put their money depends a great deal on what their goals are. Um, some companies need to sell directly, so they're desperately trying to sell. I mean, if, if a company's in, in survival state and they're about to go under, you want to justify it by saying, we're going to make sales straight away, mm-hmm. uh, which probably means you'd go for Google Ads because that's immediate payback and you can measure it. Um, if a company's looking for brand awareness, then you can look at your your brand, the number of brand searches and the quality of your brand search, what appears when somebody Googles your brand name. That would be a realistic goal. Then you say, we can make, but that's what we do at CaliCube. We measure it. And we mm-hmm. say, this is a good one. This is a bad one. This is getting better. This isn't getting better. Um, so you've, you've got multiple points of views. One is I want brand awareness. Another is I want traffic um, in order to build the top of the funnel so I can later fill the bottom of the funnel. Another is I need immediate bottom of funnel satisfaction, as it were. But um, overall, maybe the best way is to break the whole process down into top, middle, bottom, and after funnel. Never forget the after funnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the after sales stuff. That's the stuff that Google see in the in the in the loop back from the reviews and the the, the noise on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all that stuff, which it does watch. Um, and also repeat visits and not repeat visits in much the same way we were talking about Android. And divide it into those and say, we need to fill up all of these different chunks of our funnel. What we need to do is set which is the priority today. And your boss will probably always say, oh, it's, it's the bottom of the funnel. But you say, you know, if we never fill up the top of the funnel, once we've emptied the bottom of the funnel, we've got nothing coming in. So we can't just do that. Um, uh, doesn't really answer your question, but I'm not a very pragmatic person from that perspective. No, I think it. I think it does because you have to, you know, choose the right tool for the job that you're trying to achieve, which makes total sense. But I think what might actually be better for some people is rather than a top of funnel strategy, if you already have great coverage and great awareness, is to focus on particularly the after sales and the aftermarket piece especially if you're not getting really any engagement from repeat customers, if you've got a high churn rate, then your investment might be better spent in that part of your operation. And it's not going to be a search strategy for that. It's going to be a loyalty strategy or it's going to be an upsell or a cross sell or whatever. So I think that is where the power of a strategic marketer really comes into its own because yeah. you should be able to say, well, actually that's not a priority right now. Commercially, it would be better for us to spend the money here. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. It's a really lovely insight. It's saying, you know, if I'm just starting off on a, on a, uh, on a well, I would say a digital strategy, I would never see an SEO strategy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, although you probably find examples of me saying it, so I'm now going to look very foolish. But um you look at what you've already got 
and you consolidate that and you ensure and that that is your satisfied customers, your existing client base, and you make sure that, that feeds back into the wider world that Google can see, that other people see. And, you know, it's not just Google. If, if, if your existing customer base is actually tweeting about you, LinkedIn about you, and Facebooking about you, similar audiences will immediately will see that. So you're getting that ripple effect. So that's possibly the most powerful thing is to feed the bottom of the funnel or the post funnel or the after funnel, whatever we want to call it, back into the top of the funnel. Yeah. Ooh, that's that's a really nice idea, isn't it? And then you can focus on the middle of the funnel once you've got that sorted out and the middle of the funnel is going to be Google. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I think that sort of brings us to the end of our our time. Yeah. Um, Jason, do you want to tell us where people can find you, where they can ask questions of you and where they should go to find more information? Yeah, well, I'm the brand SERP guy. Uh, I'm obsessed by what appears when somebody Googles your brand name. So search my name and you will find me, basically. That's the idea. Um, you'll find my Twitter account. You'll find uh, the knowledge panel. You'll find my site. You'll find my company site. You'll find my LinkedIn profile, my Crunchbase profile, my WordLift profile. So you, you take your pick. You can you can connect with me on any one of those different platforms, uh, and you're more than welcome. Awesome. If you had to leave our marketers with one piece of advice for what they should do in 2021, what would that be? Focus on your brand. Focus on making sure that your brand message is going out there in a consistent and positive and accurate manner and that Google understands your brand and is representing your brand in a positive, accurate and convincing manner when people search your brand name. Because when they search your brand name, somebody is either doing business with you already or about to do business with you. So they're the most important people in your entire content. I'd say your marketing strategy. That's awesome. Thank you so much, folks. I, <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed the episode and uh, I will see you next time.